Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you so very much for everybody tuning in today. We have a very, very special episode today. We have Faleke Olawafoyeku is joining us today on the Bakari Sellers Podcast from Bob Hart's Abishola. It is a dope show, a great show. I'm so happy to see just the culture and the diaspora flourishing uh, for the world to see. Um, Nigerian culture is flourishing. Uh, for the entire world to see on Bob Hart's Abishola. It is such a brilliant, well-put-together piece, and we're going to talk to Felike about that today and her activism and SARS. We'll get into some of the politics of the day. But before we get to that, I just wanted to take a minute and talk about the decision ruled recently by District Attorney in Piscataunt County, uh, Andrew Womble, in the case of Andrew Brown Jr. Uh, this week, District Attorney Womble came out and said that the shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. was a justified shooting and that the officers in this case would not face any state criminal charges. Later in the day, uh, the sheriff stated that the officers would not lose their job. However, they would be disciplined, quote unquote, disciplined and retrained. Uh, Needless to say, as an attorney who represents the Brown family, uh, not just Gerard and Khalil, but also his um, five younger children. This was a very disappointing outcome, but not one that was unexpected. Uh, Many may not know that just last week, we sent a letter to the district attorney pursuant to North Carolina state law asking uh, the district attorney to recuse himself. And the reason we took that step is because after finding out who the officers were, who fired shots, we uh, we're able to uh, come to the conclusion that these officers for uh, the better part of a decade have been working with uh, District Attorney Womble and his office in prosecuting hundreds, if not thousands of cases in the county. And just to add more clarity to the conflict, his office is literally in the building that the Sheriff's Department is housed. And so we thought that the conflict was well-defined, that this incestuous relationship between uh, the district attorney and uh, the sheriff's department was one that would prevent any type of impartiality and uh, would be um, enveloped in bias. And so we sought that recusal. um, And many of you all saw this week why we fought so hard for that recusal. After watching that press conference, though, I think I need to say a few things. The first is that uh, we still remain steadfast in the belief that Andrew Brown Jr. at no point used his car as a deadly weapon uh, or posed any type of threat to law enforcement. Uh, We believe that his killing was not justified. And even if you see or believe that at any point throughout this episode, his car was used as a weapon or he posed a threat, The threat was no more when he was beyond officers and they continued to fire, including firing the kill shot into the back of his head. There are a few things for the show at the top of the show I want to point out. Uh, The first is that the district attorney made allusions that uh, the vehicle made contact with law enforcement. Well, in fact, uh, law enforcement initiated contact on not one but two occasions. Uh, The first was when law enforcement jumped out of the car. Andrew Brown Jr. dropped his phone. Uh, and law enforcement grabbed the handle of his car, and he began to back up. When he backed up, law enforcement uh, let go of the handle, 
and pushed against the car. That is the first contact um, that the district attorney points to. The second is when he backed all the way up. Of course, no officers were behind him and he began to go forward. He did not go straight ahead or just veer slightly to the left to use his car to hit officers. Instead, he veered strongly to the left uh, where an officer then reached out and pushed the car away from him. At that point, he was beyond the officers. The officers fired shots. And as we know in Tennessee v. Gardner and many other cases, you cannot shoot uh, individuals in the back as they're fleeing, um, particularly those that no longer pose a threat. And a few things that District Attorney Womble never got to, explaining how this man was shot in the back of the head, explaining why there were bullets that were found in homes across the street, explaining why officers fired through an extended school zone at 8.20 in the morning, explaining why officers fired in the direction of other officers, explaining why they violated their own policy, which is clear. Their recklessness was beyond clear in this matter. Their actions were not justified. And for anyone who wants to ask the question, well, Andrew Brown, or make the statement, well, Andrew Brown, he fled, he ran. Resisting arrest and fleeing is not a death penalty crime in this country. And Andrew Brown deserved the dignity of having due process. Because he did not get that dignity, there are seven children who today have no father. Andrew Brown was murdered and will continue the process of seeking justice. I want you all also to know that justice means changing laws on the state and local level, not just the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Because of the laws in North Carolina, we have not been able to get the uh, body cameras released in totality. We have not been able to get the district attorney recused. These officers are back at work. This is going to happen again because of the laws of the state of North Carolina. We have to fight like hell to get good people elected from the district attorney office to the state legislature and also be sure that we change the laws which codify obstruction of justice. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Foleke, uh, the star of Bob Hart's Abishola. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. How you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I see you. Are you sipping on your coconut water over there? Is that what that is? No. Oh, you, oh just water. Okay. <laughs> I'm drinking just water, not coconut just, water. <laughs> you got to stay, keep your skin flourishing and everything. You know, I yeah. usually start off all my episodes the same way. I like to walk our guests through the arc of your career. Uh, and it's my understanding that you started off-Broadway, moving to television and film, and now back to television as a sitcom star. When did you decide that you wanted to act? And talk us through why you decided to take this role in this now hit show. 
those are a lot of questions, and there are a lot of ways. For I was me to like, I, I'm it. doing my, I'm doing my best Don Lemon impersonation here. I just tried to wrap it all <laughs> in one. In one, I mean, I can't really talk about my career without talking about the extent to which I had to um, manipulate and disguise my intentions so that my family allowed me to pursue the arts because that's where it started. I had to literally okay. live, I had to leave Nigeria and leave my family, leave my continent and move to another continent to, to have the freedom to, to then, um, for the first time in my life, explore my creative aspirations and, and my talents. So, um, I initially wanted to do music. I, I guess you could say I'm one of those perhaps in quote, lucky people who knew exactly what they wanted to do from, from a young age. Uh, it wasn't nurtured and uh, I virtually had no outlet, creative outlets in Nigeria because of the way the economy is set up, because of traditions. So it wasn't until I moved to New York that I I then was free <laughs> and I got into everything. I got into modeling, I got into music, I got into acting. And um, the reason I ended up in acting was because my parents were specifically opposed to music. And mm. so I figured that maybe through acting, I could segue into music. The end goal was always music. And, um, and acting came, it was natural for me. And a lot of doors opened as soon as I went in there. So I, I guess in a way, perhaps it was serendipity. I don't know. I kind of just ended, I just mm. kind of just ended there. Uh, ended up in, in the Fortuitous. It was almost, it was fortuitous even. Yeah. 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 And um, everything I knew about, I learned about acting, majority of the things I learned about acting, I learned at the City College of New York. And uh, the theater department there was amazing. They were very nurturing. First time I had that sort of environment that was encouraging and um, validated the things that I, I wanted to do creatively. And then from there, I started thinking about, well, what's the next step after this? And I wanted to gain as much experience as possible because I didn't have time to waste. <laughs> I had something to prove to my family. Like, look, I, I got to stay here. Like, uh, I got to either stay here or I, I got to stay in the arts because they were all expecting me to graduate with um, a law degree. They, they thought I was studying economics and then going on to law school. So I needed to sh give them something concrete. Like, hey, this is what I'm doing. You're not just wasting your money. Uh, so I, um, started doing a ton of extra work, started auditioning for off board, pretty much anything I could put my, get my hands on outside of school as well as inside of school. So I was working part-time at the information desk at city college in New York. And then I was doing plays in school, two or three plays at the time. Uh, and then, um, I was also on the basketball team and I was going to school full-time. So that, that was pretty much my um, introduction to into the world of theater, into the world of acting. I learned a lot. It taught me a lot of discipline. I was also modeling there on the side. And mm. pretty much anything I could get my hands on to give my parents concrete information and concrete like uh, proof that I, I was out here doing something meaningful. And you keep mentioning your parents, but your father was a prominent attorney in Nigeria and active in Nigerian politics. And your family wanted you to become a lawyer and go into the family business of law and politics. Are you still active in Nigerian politics? And for our listeners who may not follow as closely, can you talk about what it was like growing up in a family as prominent as yours was in Nigerian politics? Well, 
I think there was um there was an unspoken expectation that I had like all the members of the family had something to live up to in terms of um how do I put this without putting too much pressure on us um <laughs> it was unspoken it was an unspoken rule that you were going to aspire to the heights that your father did right in at least for my family I was named after the first female senior advocate of Nigeria and that in itself was kind of like a, a directive if you will from my father about what I was going to go on to do with my life and so um I, I mean it had to, it's had some perks and um it had some pressures cuz uh perhaps it still does even now and in terms of how involved I am with Nigerian politics I'm always I always have my eye on the ground for for what's going on what's going on at home um I'm home most of the time when I'm not working and the state of things right now is is not is not the best economically politically uh socially pretty much in every way you can think of there are just so many injustices that just seem to keep on escalating in the country and um I'm not quite sure at what point the politicians are going to say hey I have made enough money let me look out for my fellow man and then i wonder how much influences from without from abroad are benefiting from the destruction and um and discord that exists in the country you know you i've interviewed probably 75 people for the show and you've been one of the more interesting interviews i've ever had to prepare for just the complexity and the nuance not just of your character on the show but who you are. So before we get to Bob Loves Abishola, I want to ask one more question and just talk about the NSARS movement in Nigeria and what it is and about your activism around that police violence, because I was taken aback by just how much strength and courage you show and not only how talented you are, but how you utilize your platform to go out and do, do good throughout the diaspora. NSARS, unfortunately, has been an ongoing movement in Nigeria for quite a while. And SARS is a particular department of the the police force in in Nigeria and uh they were created as a sort of well I guess the same way any police um any police establishment is is established is to to um to combat corruption and injustices. And unfortunately they ended up being uh, a lot of them ended up being the ones perpetrating these crimes uh, on civilians responsible for rape, murder, theft. Unfortunately in the country, you know, bribery and corruption is just like it's just like an everyday occurrence from every on every level. Um and um Nigerians and Nigerian youths have been calling for the disbandment of SARS because they seem to be escalating with impunity uh the crimes they were they were committing. And um Various at various points in time, Nigerian officials have said yes. Okay, they've been disbanded. They no longer exist. Only for them to come back. And um, I think the most violent, at least that we caught, the most violence that we caught on camera regarding this protest happened October tenth, twenty twenty, and uh, October. Sorry, October twentieth, twenty twenty, and. Um, there were peaceful protesters at the toll gate in Lekki who were protesting 
the injustices in general and NSARS because it became a bigger movement, uh, which was also supported by the Black Lives Matter movement that was also occurring in Nigeria, in America. And, um, and they were all peacefully protesting uh, this afternoon in, in Lekki when uh, armed militia, in quote, mm-hmm. um, armed policemen, in quote, because we still haven't gotten exactly any, no one has been held responsible for this. Um, we haven't gotten any clear information about who came and shot at these peaceful protesters. And um, there were cameras at the toll gates that were taken out right before these people arrived with their guns and cornered the protesters and started shooting them and took their bodies away. The only way we were able to quiet, to know, to get information about what was going on was because a few people started recording it on their Instagram live. Officials after the fact came out and said, hey, it wasn't the army, it wasn't the police, they have nothing to do with this. And then later on, they started saying that it never happened. It was video effects. And that's pretty much, as far as I know, where things have st- have ended. Um, life has gone, it seems to be going on as normal. And still, uh, the government and the officials have not come forward with anybody responsible for that, which is atrocious. Yeah, I mean, it's injustices throughout the world. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let's talk about the reason that you're here, which is uh, Bob loves Abishola, which is hilarious. Bob Hart's Abishola. Yes. Hearts. I love it. First, for the people who haven't heard of the show, what is it about and how can they watch it? Well, uh, the show is um, a comedy. My wife wife loves it, by the way. My wife just (laughs) swears by it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank her. Um, So (laughs) it's um, it's a show about season one starts with a Nigerian nurse who I play, Abishala who's at work and uh, while she's doing her rounds, taking care of her patients, this one particular guy named Bob starts cracking jokes and shit 
<laughs> can I can I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> Please, you can say shit, fuck, whatever you want to. Okay. <laughs> starts uh, starts cracking jokes, and um, she's trying to work, and he's pretty insistent on um, getting her to give him some attention and going out on a date. And with the intervention of her Nigerian family, who she lives with in Nigeria, her son, her aunt, and her uncle, and uh, and his family, they they kind of push them closer together until both of their worlds entwine and they start to get to know each other. And, and then magic happens and season two, they're now dating seriously and Mm -hmm. uh, are engaged. And um, we kind of take a journey with, with them on um, wedding planning for, a Nigerian it's hilarious, wedding. I just want you to know <laughs> that this is, and I don't, and you know what's crazy? I don't know why my wife walks around the house calling it Bob Loves Abishola. Bob Hart's Abishola. And, yeah, and, Bob and, Hart's Abishola. Yeah, and it's just, it, it's, so you, you break a lot of ground in the show because if I'm not mistaken, this is the first show where black immigrant family is the center of the show. How do you feel about playing such a pioneering role in how Americans view black families and particularly black Nigerian families? Uh it feels like an honor. It feels like um, a nice responsibility to have. Uh, I wish my parents could see this. <laughs> um, <Dude. laughs> it uh, <laughs> it feels um, you know, it feels good. I know when I when I first moved to America, the one of the hurdles I had to one of the challenges I had was trying to change my accent because I wasn't getting a lot of work because of my Nigerian accent. So. Um, I think, and I don't think that's necessary. I think there's a time to have like a standard accent, but there's also room to show variety as we exist in the world, especially Mm -hmm. in America. So I think the show highlights and normalizes us, immigrants, Nigerians. And it's a beautiful thing because for a lot of people, this is the first, this is their first introduction to Nigerian family. They've heard about the Nigerian princes. They've heard about uh, the email scams, you know, but they've never really gotten to know a Nigerian family and see the similarities that we all share. So uh, it's a beautiful thing. And I think one of the important things for me was to make sure that she was not a caricature, that she was, she was, um, the way I portrayed her was, was genuine and authentic. And so it was very easy to humanize uh, that was going to be my question to you. That that was how did you ensure? Because taking on this role is a pioneering role. It's a dope role. I know it's an honor for you. But then you have to ensure that it's authentic because you don't want other Nigerians looking at you like, no, nah, she this kind of sideways right here. Like, what's she out there doing? That's not us. So, how did you yeah. ensure that that authentic take? Uh, I mean, the producers and the writers. I think it starts with them. And yeah. I think we have like the best team in the business. And, uh, and for me, when I got the script, I, um, I didn't want, I remember spending a lot of time. I remember reading the script and, and learning the lines and it was so easy. Like it just flowed like water. Uh, the writers are so good because I feel like one of the, one of the, a good, one of, a good example that a project for me, I'm speaking for myself, is well-written is the ease with which the language just flows off your tongue. And that was my experience with the pilot. And, um, and I got it and I sat down and I just thought about images I'd seen of Africans in, in, in the media, in, mm-hmm. 
and and I I thought to myself, well, what do I want to portray? Like, how do I want this character to to be received? If if this goes longer than a pilot, what do I want her to stand for? And I considered all the things that she was experiencing. She was a love interest first. Like, can you believe a Nigerian love interest on sitcom? She was a love interest, but she was also stern, disciplined, very focused. So how do I merge those two worlds? And then I had to think about, well, what do I want her to sound like? What part of Nigeria do I want her from? I, I honed down on Elisha, which is where I'm from. And that's the accent I tapped into. So she's, she's Yoruba, and, and then you can, you, like, depending on where you're from, you, you can tell exactly what kind of, um, where, what region she's from. So these were all the things that I was picking apart and trying to infuse into the character. And, and one of the things that have caught on is the way Abishala pronounces Bob, Bobu. And that was something that was infused into the script. And I was like, well, how do I justify why he laughs at the way she pronounces his name? And I went to a very, very, very strong Nigerian accent to pull that out. And um, and so the, these are all the things I'm thinking about as I'm trying to create this character. And then obviously the demographic and the fact that the show is in in America means that those things still have to be tweaked a little bit to fit the format of the show. But, uh, but those, that, that was my, that was my thought process as, uh, I was preparing for the character. I wanted, I wanted her to be genuine. I wanted her experiences to be relatable. And, uh, I also wanted to find a balance between her being so, so tough and strong and still being able to be seen as, as lovable and, uh, and, and a romantic character. And hilarious. When you uh, you say you spend a lot of time back home, this may be a, a silly question, but what it, what is the what what do people say about the show or say about you now reaching this pinnacle of success that you've reached? I mean, you you kind of you you left you 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 didn't necessarily do what the expectation was for you, and you come home with this other product that you've exceeded all expectations. I mean, you're at the top of the game now. What's the reception like for you back home? Oh, it's great. I mean, the 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 preview for the pilot, uh, went at, right after we got picked up, went viral in Nigeria. That was the first step. So all my like my high school friends from Nigeria were calling me and like hitting me up, like yo 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 yo, like it's everywhere. And like WhatsApp group, that's what we all use to communicate. So my aunties and my brothers, they're like sending me messages when someone comments. They're sending me the whole screenshot. And uh, it's like, oh, is that your sister? Like, wow, that's little Falake. <laughs> All that stuff. So, so that was <laughs> nice. And and then the show started airing in Nigeria last year, and um, and then that that's brought some new fans as well. And I remember after we'd finished shooting, right as soon as I was done, as soon as I was done shooting season one, the next day I was on a plane back home, and um, I remember I w- I was at Lagos Polo Club. And these two girls, like, like, were in the bathroom with me and started reciting lines from the show. And it was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I, bumped into, I bumped into one of my friends at, uh, at, at one of these cafes. And uh, as I walked away, she's like, my, my auntie says you resemble Abishala. And I was like, that's you. And then they came running out. It was, it was pretty awesome. It was, it was a nice reception. <laughs> Yeah. Congratulations on being renewed for a third season, though. Let me Thank ask you, you. Why, why do you think uh, Bob Hart's Abishola, why do you think it's become such a popular sitcom? And when you first read the scripts for this role, did you ever imagine 
did you ever imagine that it would have the success that it's had? No, I mean, there's no way to, I mean, I mean, as an actor, you always hope, you're always looking for an opportunity to work. But um, I say that a majority of my time before the show was spent auditioning. And I used to joke around like, what do you do for a living? I audition for a living. <laughs> and then every once in a while I get to go on set and, and act. So, I mean, you don't want to set yourself up for failure by thinking way ahead. Uh, that's the way I've kind of approached auditions moving forward um, at a certain point in my career. Um, just so as a defense mechanism. So I wasn't con- constantly feeling let down or feeling rejection. So I go and audition and live it in the room and think about, well, what's next for, for better or for worse. Those habits have kind of stayed. Uh, so I, I wasn't thinking it was, everything was a surprise. I did the audition. The first callback was a surprise. The test was a surprise. The pilot pickup was a surprise. The season two was like, that's kind of, I, I try to stay in, in the moment and, um, that's, I guess that's the way I kind of dealt with it. And, uh, season three pickup was a surprise, but I I'm intentionally making it that way. So it's harder to, it's that's easier a, to deal with. That's a great way to live life. My last question for you is this, before I let you go, let's talk about your music career, because this isn't just a hobby for you because you play the guitar, piano and worked as a sound engineer and you're formerly trained in audio engineering. Who have been some of your musical influences? And I mean, are we waiting on you to be a guest on Burner Boy's next album? I mean, what, tell me what's next for you. <laughs> Big up to Burner Boy. Um, music <laughs> he's is my fa- a hobby. He's my favorite artist in the entire <laughs> world right now. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of him. Congratulations to him. Uh, music is kind of a hobby right now. Um, I'm constantly working on music. Um, I have a catalog of songs that I just sit on, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) maybe I'll do something with it one day. Let's see. Um, I did study audio engineering because it was very important to me to kind of, um, have control over the sound that I was creating. My sound is, it's a fusion. It's, it doesn't, no one else does what I, what I, what I do musically. And, um, it was hard to kind of explain that to people and to get the right verbiage, to get the right uh, terminology. I felt like I had to study the music myself. So then I, so I studied audio engineering. I also taught myself to play the guitar because electric guitar, because that that's a sound that's very unique and to my overall sound, but most importantly is something that speaks to me on a different level on a, on a spiritual level. Uh, the same thing with African drums. And um, I, I think I'm, I'm spending a lot of time just working internally on music before I share it with the world because it's very important for me that it sounds like me and, um, and where I'm going. It's going to be quite interesting. Listen, I'm, I am waiting uh, for <laughs> that foray and when you drop that album because if it's been anything like the rest of your career... It's going to be a success and it's going to keep climbing. And uh, I just want to say this was one of the most awesome opportunities I've had in doing this podcast. And thank you for spending some time with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Before I let you go, I wanted to give a shout out to my friend and former guest of this show. Uh, yes, we are uh, stroking our ego a little bit. Shout out to Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner and the new mayor-elect of the city of Pittsburgh, Ed Ganey. In case you missed it, a police union-driven campaign to oust the reform-oriented District Attorney of Philadelphia failed miserably, where Krasner won by 30 points. That's a resounding victory for progressive criminal justice reform and the progressive movement generally. I know I'm hard on progressive friends from time to time, but in Larry's race, I think we saw that you can run in a city where black voters are dominant and run and win on a platform that's committed to reform. Across the state in Pittsburgh, a black liberal state representative in Ed Ganey beat two-time incumbent mayor of Pittsburgh, Bill Peduto. How'd he do it? He ran a campaign focused on equity and getting to the root of over-policing in Pittsburgh's black communities. And he did that in a city that's only about 25% black. He also did it on a ballot that banned no-knock warrants and solitary confinement. So what should we take from this? I think the takeaway here from my friends that are mayors is that you can run and win on police transparency and reform. It's also a lesson here that we need more progressive DAs everywhere, and you can run and win in the right jurisdiction as a progressive, reform-oriented district attorney. It's also a lesson that police unions aren't as powerful as they once were, because very rarely do you see DAs depart this sharply from the law enforcement community and win. I think there's also a lesson here for the Democrats seeking to flip Pennsylvania's Senate seat in 2022. First, progressive ballot initiatives help drive turnout. It's an old Republican trip, but it's one that Democrats need to use more often. Policing, marijuana, and those type of things make the proposition for voting really clear for young and often infrequent voters, and they benefit us up the ballot. Second, you don't have to cater solely to the middle of Pennsylvania or Pensa, Kentucky, in order to win any longer. There's some real wiggle room in running on justice issues and framing them as working class issues that can spike turnout in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh while not losing as badly in central Pennsylvania because young people and black and brown people and some liberal and progressive folk live there too. You just have to speak to them. In short, we don't have to be a Republican light in Pennsylvania to win in 22. So congratulations, shout out to D.A. Krasner. You only won because you came on the show. <laughs> and Pittsburgh Mayor-elect Ed Ganey. And I hope my friends in the Senate Democratic primary in Pennsylvania are taking notice. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Monday with another show. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, sharing, and suggesting new guests. Have a great day. Good.